Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today I'm really looking forward to doing this show on urban refugees in Jordan. I'm sure most of you have heard about the refugee crisis going on in Europe, the controversy about letting refugees into the United States. There's been a lot out there on this horrible issue, um, the plight of these people, the controversy, etc. And I've been wanting to do a show on refugees, however, the media has covered it so much that um, today we're doing a show that's looking at a different side of the refugee crisis that has not been covered that much, so I'm really excited to bring this topic to you. And for today's guest, I have Elena Haberski on the line, and she's with us from Jordan. So first of all, thank you for coming on the show from so far away, Elena. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So for our listeners, Elena has been living in Amman, and she's been in Jordan for three years since arriving on a Fulbright scholarship. And she has been working with urban refugees since her arrival, and was a teacher prior to working at the Collateral Repair Project. And at the Collateral Repair Project, she is currently the Programs and Administrative Manager in East Amman. And she's been working with the Syrian and Iraqi refugees over there. So she is the perfect person for this topic because she is there on the ground working with these individuals. So, Elena, um, to start off with, you had this great article which actually got my attention to have you on the show in Mufta. It was published on January 11th, and it was called The Urban Refugee Experience in Jordan. So to start off, why don't you describe what an urban refugee is for our listeners? Sure. So as we all know, a refugee is someone who flees or is forced from their homeland. Um, This can be due to war, conflict, ethnic cleansing, and natural disaster, any of these reasons. And they flee to a neighboring country. And an urban refugee is a refugee who either decides or is obligated for some reason to settle in an urban area of the country rather than a refugee camp. So as you probably have seen in the media a lot, um, the media tends to focus on camps just because people are more aware of that. When they think of refugees, they automatically think of them living in these tents, in these camps, um, but they're missing an entire side to the story, as you said, and that is urban refugees who do not live in these camps. They live in urban areas. These can be big cities like Amman, which is the capital of Jordan, or just other smaller urban areas within a country. And what is it that attracts refugees to Jordan? Is it the proximity to Syria and Iraq? Are there initiatives provided by the kingdom uh, and or human rights organizations in the kingdom? Or is it a lack of self-funding to travel further to easier you know, destinations that are further away? So say Europe, um, or is it also the issue of assimilating into Jordan? The, the cultural differences are not as different as it would be, say, going to Germany or another country in the European region. Right. So I would say it's actually all of those. Um, So obviously the close proximity of Jordan to neighboring conflicts is the main reason why we see refugee populations coming to the Hashemite kingdom, especially Syria and Iraq, which both uh, border Jordan. We see a lot of, especially Syrian refugees from the southern part of Syria, which is closest to Jordan, um, including the city of Dara, which is where the revolution actually and the further um, the civil war started in Syria. 
Um, but we also see refugees from Homs, from Aleppo, you know, huge Syrian cities um, that are pretty much completely destroyed coming into Jordan. And for Iraq, same thing. Um, the distance, it's super close for them uh, to just kind of go straight into Jordan. Obviously, because the refugee crisis is huge in the Middle East, there are many organizations within Jordan right now operating really large organizations like UNHCR, IOM, IRD, uh, CARE International, Save the Children, all of these bigger international organizations. But then you also have smaller NGOs like Collateral Repair Project, where I work, which is also international, but still operating within Jordan. Um, and as you said, the culture is very similar. Uh, all these countries speak Arabic, so the people feel a little more comfortable and religious wise, culture wise, yeah, it's just, it's much easier for them. They've already gone through trauma. They've experienced the unthinkable. So for them, at least having that little bit of comfort is attractive, of course. Are you seeing any refugees coming from other areas besides Syria and Iraq? I know Jordan has been a huge, has a huge intake of Palestinians that have come through the years because of the conflict there. I mean, do you see any other country citizens coming in? Yeah, so actually this is a very important question because there's registered over 5,000 refugees from other countries, predominantly Sudan and Somalia. And unfortunately, last month, uh, Jordan deported over 500 Sudanese refugees. Um, and most of these refugees were fleeing the genocide in Darfur. So these refugees are almost forgotten about, especially in the international media, because their conflicts have kind of already been swept under the rug. Maybe five, ten years ago, genocide in Darfur, it was huge in the news. All the celebrities were talking about it. George Clooney was advocating for a solution, saved our four, was huge. But now people think, oh, well, that's done, that's over, we have to focus on Syria now. And this just isn't the case, unfortunately. We still see people fleeing from Sudan, unable to go back home. Um, they're living as well in urban areas. They're not getting the aid. There are barely any organizations, unfortunately, uh, in Jordan helping them. So for sure, there are other refugee populations here. Um, and unfortunately, they're not really in the spotlight because the media almost tells people what they should focus on. And right now, that's Syria. So that was a really interesting comment you made about the organizations not focusing on these Sudanese refugees. Do you see being there the idea that these organizations, there are many, as you mentioned, that they're only focusing on a certain population of refugees. So in this case, since it's the big topic, Syria and Iraq, or Syrians and Iraqis, I mean, personally, I would think that if you're an organization helping refugees, it would be all refugees that are coming into that region. Right. So as I was saying, a lot of these international organizations are focusing on the refugees in the camps. So there are very few organizations working with urban refugees, especially within Amman. The organization I work for, CRP, Collateral Repair Project, we're very small. We've been operating since 2006. We were founded by two American women who were against the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So they came and they helped Iraqi refugees who were fleeing. 
and we work predominantly in one neighborhood and because our funds are so limited and because you know the situation that we're in we can't um, unfortunately expand to even other neighborhoods than the one we're in and the neighborhood that we're in is predominantly Iraqi with Syrians coming in but there are no Sudanese in the neighborhood that we're living And like I said, we don't have the funds really to expand our reach into other neighborhoods where other populations are living. Another problem we're running into is a lot of people with good intentions, great intentions, are coming to us and saying, look, we have this money, we have these grants, we have these great initiatives from maybe the EU or other organizations, but this money is earmarked for a particular population. So say for Syrians, we have an education program. An organization like the one I work at, which does not discriminate based on you know anything, nationality, religion, country of origin, anything, we can't put on a program like that and exclude half of the population that we work with. You know, when you're trying to work with a population that you've been working with for 10 years and you post a sign outside that says, hey, we have this great new program, but I'm sorry, it's only for Syrians, then that's a huge issue for any organization. Um, So this is a huge this is a huge issue that we're starting to deal with. And I know other organizations have also been dealing with. Um, And. That's pretty much where we're at right now with this kind of situation. And, you know, because people don't even realize that these other populations are here, and I only met the Sudanese because I used to teach them, um, there's not much funding for them in that aspect. Going back to refugees in general, what kind of numbers are we talking about that are coming into Jordan? Right. So I looked at the latest statistics, which are from December 31st, and you can find the statistics online. They usually update them about every two or three weeks. Um, So obviously, majority Syrian refugees. We have a a little over 634,000. But urban refugees out of that are 519,218. So that makes up 81.9% of Syrian refugees, which are urban And 28% of them are in Amman, which is the majority of the urban refugees. For Iraqi, we have 53,014. These are also registered numbers from UNHCR. And 89.4% of them are in Amman. And then there's a little over 5,000 registered other refugees. These aren't broken down, unfortunately. But there's about... 3,500 to 4,000 Sudanese and the rest are Somali and a few Eritrean and these populations. So we're talking huge numbers that are mostly uh, descending onto Amman, basically, it sounds like. At this point, yes. Why would a refugee choose to live in an urban setting versus the different camps that these organizations have set up that you mentioned earlier in the discussion? Right. So it kind of there's a lot of reasons. Um, But the one thing that people keep telling me over and over is dignity, a sense of dignity for them personally. You know, you have people who were lawyers, doctors, professors in universities. They were from big cities. They had nice houses. They had cars. They had the newest technology. 
And then literally in one day, their whole life was torn apart. So for them, it's almost a sense of normalcy. It's a sense of dignity for them to live in a city environment. Um, and they have a right of movement, which isn't always necessarily true in the camps. So they can go from one place to another. Um, they can visit friends. They can go to a community center. So this, is, I think, is the most important aspect of why people come to cities. Um, for people like the Iraqis who have come in waves, they know of people from maybe their towns or their families who are already established within a city. It's also easier for families. You know, they maybe have the resources to pull together to pay for an apartment so they can stay together. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, the situation in the camps, while many organizations are doing a great job with providing services, they're not always the best. And neither is the city life necessarily. But people would rather, like I said, have that freedom of movement, that sense of normalcy, that sense of dignity within a city context. So to elaborate on that, how would urban refugees experience be different, say, than refugees that are going to Europe or even the refugees that are in these camps? Well, obviously, for the main issue with an urban refugee and refugees in Jordan in general is that they are not allowed to work. It is illegal to work by Jordanian law. And if they get caught, they could be in big trouble, even deport it. Um, so this is the main problem for urban refugees. You see people coming, some of them do bring money with them, but you have people, for example, who fled Mosul and they got a phone call that ISIS was, you know, 15, 20 kilometers away and they had to leave right that second. So when you are in this situation, you don't have time to grab money or documents. You just, you get your family and you get out. Um, so Amman is very expensive uh, to live based off of what people make. It's been rated by the um, economists. One of their kind of programs that they run is the most expensive city in the Middle East and North Africa to live based off of what people make. Um, rent is very expensive. Um, these people are getting gypped off at this point by landlords, unfortunately, and they're running out of money. And this is a huge problem because then they don't know how they're going to get food on the table. And because they don't know how they're going to get food on the table, they sometimes, unfortunately, will go to negative coping mechanisms, begging on the street. Um, the stress might lead them to domestic violence. They could even think about fleeing back to their home countries because some say they would rather die with, you know, in their home country than in a foreign land. So I would say working is like the biggest issue that we see for these refugees because if they don't work, they can't get money. They also don't really have anywhere to go during the day necessarily. Um, of course, you do see some refugees who will get some odd jobs here and there in construction, maybe catering, cleaning houses, but it's not consistent and it doesn't bring in enough money to feed a family of four, for example. And 
you describe in your article this idea of families supporting themselves with the money that potentially, if they even have the liberty to bring over with them when they're fleeing their country. And you've touched on a bit of what happens when they run out of money. Do the majority tend to go back to their home countries just because they have no other option? Or do they tend to stay in Amman and, as you mentioned, beg or or I don't know what, really. I mean, you're the, you're the one that's there. You know what's going on. Right. So thankfully, the majority are staying um, in Amman. It's very rare that we see families going back to their home country. It happens for sure. Um, but it is rare. Thankfully, um, the World Food Program, you know, they lost funding in August which for their food vouchers, which was huge. But thankfully, they got it back. And I think they said they have enough until April. Also, the organization I work for, we give out monthly food vouchers. Um, so a lot of people will try and receive aid. Um, but yeah, they feel, especially if they have a family more so, that even if they run out of money and they owe people money, even like a landlord, it's still worth trying to stay and, you know, fight it out than to go back. That's very understandable. Is there enough funding in all of these different organizations that are there on the ground to support this? I mean, is there enough help that will be available to these refugees or is this getting to the point that eventually the help is going to run out for a majority of the individuals that have decided to go to Iman? So for certain, the biggest problem we have is food and trying to get enough assistance for people to get food on the table. This just isn't a problem at the organization where I work for. It's pretty much all of the organizations, you know, always trying to get funding. The bigger organizations will reach out to different governments. We reach out to different donors from abroad, individual donors through social media. Um, but I think in order for this to even be at all sustainable, that the government is going to have to allow a small or hopefully a larger, but at least if starting a small number of refugees to work certain jobs to get some kind of income. Because the way that this is going, the numbers, they're not stopping. People are continually fleeing. We have new registrations every week. Um, and they're going to have to find a more sustainable way to deal with this. And I think that is allowing the refugees at least to work in certain jobs. And how long might that take? Because once again, looking at the issue going on in Europe with the refugees, we hear about individual families that have been sitting in tents uh, or different um, shelters for over a year without being able to work. Is Amon able to speed this process up potentially? We're hoping. Um, you know, there's been chatter that maybe sometime this year that they will be allowing certain numbers to work again. We don't know. These are just, you know, things that we hear through other organizations. But I think that at this point, because it's almost five years, at least for the Syrian crisis, um, it shows no signs of stopping. People are still fleeing not only from Syria, but from Iraq and from other countries that we need to look at this a different way. It's not just like the refugees are coming and then maybe in a year they can go back. I mean, this is kind of a long term uh, life for them now, unfortunately, which 
they realized, and I think also other organizations in the government realizes because they are smart and they're realizing now that we have to, we have to do something different at this point. One thing that you keep mentioning is the idea of registered refugees. I have a question. Do you see unregistered refugees? So people that are coming into the country but are not registered, there is no trace of them. Um, maybe they don't do it because they think that it's not going to help them to be registered or they're going to get kicked out or something. Do you see cases like that? It's very rare, especially people coming through the Syrian border because the UNHCR will register them pretty much right away um, on the border. And if you're registered, that means you are at least eligible for some kind of aid. Um, so most families, especially, and individuals, of course, will want to be registered in order to access any type of benefits that might be available to them. Another question we've been talking about a lot of the family unit or adults. And so another question that comes to mind is what about the children of refugees, whether they're with family members or even potentially on their own because they have lost family. What is the experience for a child refugee in an urban setting like Jordan? Right. So the biggest thing uh, that we see is, I mean, the children obviously are dealing with trauma. Um, even if they're young, they will still tell you, I remember the bombs going off. I saw people killed in the street, you know, and these are really young children dealing with these really adult and big issues. Um, so this is something that really needs to be dealt with. Unfortunately, because a lot of the aid and organizations, we need to focus on emergency assistance. So food in the winter, fuel vouchers, blankets, these types of things that sometimes psychosocial wellness and health is kind of put on the back burner because it's not seen as, you know, we need to do this right now. Um, thankfully, the organization I work for, we do have um, psychosocial and wellness programs available for adults and children, um, but this isn't the case necessarily, especially for a lot of urban refugees. So this is something the kids are dealing with. And in order to give them a stable kind of existence in an urban setting as a refugee, they should be in school. And education, this is a huge topic and it's very important. So for Syrians, there is no registration fee for them to enter school. However, for Iraqis and other refugee populations, there is a registration fee that they must pay. It's about 48 dinar, which equals 60 US dollars. This is very expensive. Even if you have one child, imagine you have multiple children. You have no money to put food on the table. How are you supposed to put your kids in school? And even the Syrians who don't have to pay the registration fee, they, along with the Iraqis and the Sudanese and all the other refugee communities, still need to pay for books, uniforms, school supplies like backpacks and pencils and notebooks. And this could come out to about $100. So a lot of families, they don't have this money and they can't afford to put multiple children, let alone one child sometimes, in school. You also see the issue that if kids have been out of school for three years, they're not technically allowed to re-register in a normal school setting. They have to find some type of alternative schooling. 
Um, so this is a huge, huge issue. Uh, and I think it should be talked about more. Um, but thankfully, like the program, the organization I work for, we have an after school club that children can come to. I think this is so important because most of the children are not in school. So it's a place for them to come. They do Arabic and a little bit of English. So we want to focus more on Arabic because they don't even have those skills necessarily yet, especially the young ones, the six year olds and the seven year olds. Um, but yeah, it's kind of scary to think that a whole generation of children is not getting a proper education and they're going through this trauma and these memories and all, all of this kind of put together. And in the camps per se, do they have an educational system or is it the same system of if you're Syrian, you can go to a Jordanian school and if you're not, then you need to find a different method of going to school or pay this fee? Right, so there are schools and um, the camps, but sometimes, you know, there are many children for one teacher, they might not have enough supplies. Um, and in certain areas like around the camps where there are still refugees, maybe technically they don't live in the camp, but they live in the area outside. If they attend Jordanian schools, there are so many students now that they kind of have a split schedule to accommodate the numbers. So half of the children might go in the morning and then the other half might go in the evening and then they'll switch every month or something like this, uh, which is very confusing, I would believe, and kind of detrimental to a sense of stability and normalcy. And why is it that Jordan provides the educational system free to Syrians, of course, they need to buy their children's supplies and so forth, but not to Iraqis and, say, other refugees? Um, I don't honestly know the precise answer for this. I would assume that because, like I said in the beginning, the Syrian crisis is more in the media, that they might have the funding from international donors for um, the educational fees for Syrians, and because maybe the other uh, populations aren't as much in the news that they don't have the funding or the um, donors for this. Again, I'm not 100% certain on that, but that's just kind of what I'm thinking. And then moving the, the conversation to the current situation in Jordan, what has been the position of Jordanians to this influx of refugees? I mean, here in the States, we hear the discussion of refugees coming in, and there's a lot of bias, unfortunately, due to fear of security issues, whether it's founded or unfounded. But we get a lot of animosity in the media, at least, let's say, on the part of refugees. Are you seeing a similar feeling in Jordan from Jordanians? Is this something that they see as draining their country? I would say like America, it's almost the same. You see people who unfortunately have these stereotypes, but then you have people who are doing amazing work through organizations. Um, you can usually tell from taxi drivers. I don't, this is maybe more of a Middle Eastern thing, but if you want to know like what's going on, you talk to a taxi driver because they talk to everybody and they have their own opinions and they're always listening to the news. Um, and they kind of are almost split on this issue. So unfortunately, some people are 
They will tell you that there was never any problems in Jordan until the refugees came in. So sexual harassment was never a problem until the refugees came in and now it's in the streets. Or there was never any garbage in the streets until the refugees came or violence or whatever. So unfortunately, like these are stereotypes that are put towards the other, the foreigner, even though culturally and linguistically and all of these things are similar. They still see them as being different. Their accents are a little different. I don't know how much um, your listeners know about Arabic, but there are different accents depending on which country or even which area of the country you are from. Um, Even though the Levant area, Jordan, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria are similar, like they have different accents. So people sometimes discriminate if they can hear that your accent is different. I've had Syrian friends who say, you know, they try and speak in Jordanian so no one knows um, that they're Syrian because they might be ripped off or something like this. And this is unfortunate. And you you hear the same rhetoric like, oh, we can't let them work. They're going to steal our jobs and they're going to take all our money. And unfortunately, Jordan is not a resource rich country, especially with regards to water. They're one of the poorest in the world, actually. Um, So a lot of people are very concerned about this. Where are they going to get the water resources to uh, accommodate a growing population of refugees? But then on the other hand, you have amazing people who are working in these organizations, having art galleries and fundraising events and just doing amazing on the ground work and awareness building for the international community. So I would say like the United States, it's exactly the same. You have both sides of the coin um, and it just, you know, you have to do your own research and figure out kind of what you believe in. And to elaborate on something you mentioned about the effects with water and so forth. I mean, how is this influx of people affecting the system of Jordan and the economy and even daily life? Right, so I would say in general, um, for the natural resources and these things, people are concerned because, again, like I said, Jordan doesn't have a lot and everyone needs water, for example. Um, The economy, I would say they are spending money on certain things, so this is probably helping the economy in general. Again, at this point, they are not allowed to work, so they are not really in jobs. competing with other populations like the Jordanians. Uh, Again, though, the resources is the main point. Does Jordan have enough resources to sustain their growing population, especially if they are going to be here for multiple years? You see, obviously, the European refugee crisis, but the majority of the refugees are not fleeing to Europe. They are still in neighboring countries like Jordan. They do not have enough money to pay a smuggler to take them into Turkey and then on a boat to Greece. This is not, you know, the norm for urban refugees or refugees in general. Um, So this is an issue that really needs to be looked at. And, you know, the international community really needs to be aware that the reason why people are fleeing if they do have the funds is because of the situations in neighboring countries. They feel like this is not sustainable. I have a better chance in Europe where I can maybe get a job, open up, you know, open up a business or get a better education. 
So this is kind of what we're seeing right now. And how sustainable is the urban refugee experience when you look at both both sides, basically? So the side of the kingdoms and the side of the refugees. I mean, I don't want to be pessimistic. There have been refugees here for, you know, multiple years and they are surviving. But with the kind of numbers that are coming in and the dwindling resources and kind of the fatigue of the international community, I don't think it can be sustainable for multiple years. Um, We do see people who are being relocated and resettled. The numbers are small, but it is happening. Um, But those numbers need to be larger. Um, And... You know, like I said, the most important thing is that some of these refugees be allowed to work to get any source of income to provide for themselves and for their families so they do not um, go towards negative coping mechanisms. Something I found really enjoyable in your article was the discussion, and I guess you could consider it sort of an intro into Jordan's history as a place that refugees do come to. And you mentioned that they have a history of almost 200 years of people coming to Iman in general for um, help, really. And I was wondering if you could look at that a bit, because this is not just a recent issue. It's not just an issue since Palestinian and, and Israeli conflict. This is something that's been going on for a long time. Right. So... As uh, I'm not sure, but maybe most of your listeners know, like Amman as a capital compared to, say, Damascus or Cairo or Beirut is very young. It has been continuously inhabited for thousands of years, but as a modern kind of era of Middle Eastern capital city, it's very young. Um, and it's not heavily populated, say, as Cairo or Damascus was or any other kind of capital city. So when it wasn't highly inhabited, of course, you know, under the Ottomans, when the Circassians came from Russia or the Armenians, Amman kind of just seemed like a normal, there wasn't that many people. So why not kind of go there and populate it? And you still see, like I think, I believe I said in my article, you still see these populations here and their families have been here for generations. I mean, they still keep their kind of heritage alive. Uh, Like I said, I taught here before I worked at CRP, and I taught many Armenian students, for example, and they still speak Armenian with their families as well as Arabic. Um, So this heritage is something that they're proud of. And then you have the Hashemites coming in once the Hashemite kingdom was kind of established. So people from Saudi and that area came in. You have the Israeli-Palestinian conflict where you see hundreds of thousands of Palestinians fleeing into Amman. And now you have the waves of Iraqis and Syrians and Sudanese and Somalis. So Amman has had a long history of this, and it seems like it's it's continuing that legacy, which in a sense, if you look at it, it's it's a great legacy to have. You're becoming a haven for people that need a place to go. Exactly. And it is a great history. And the fact that really no one I feel has focused on this is really a shame um, because you have this great history. You still have people coming in and you should really show this to the world and the international community that, hey, this is what this city is about. And maybe 
it's not looked upon as Cairo or Damascus or Beirut are, but you know, there should be some attention on Amman as a city and kind of its history of accepting different peoples. Shifting the conversation to the politics around the refugee crisis and especially urban refugees, what type of political discussion have we heard around Georgians' urban refugees? So I would say the political discussion has kind of been non-existent for urban refugees. I feel like when most politicians come, whether they're from the United States or from Europe, they usually will visit the refugee camps, they'll have a photo op, um, they'll meet with the children, and most people think, oh, well, this is what the refugee experience is like in Jordan. And that's why I wrote this article, because it's not the typical experience for most refugees. And the fact that these politicians feel that after they go to a camp, like Ben Carson, who I mentioned in my article, can say, well, this is the experience of all these refugees, and because of this, we should do X, Y, and Z. This is just incorrect, and it's dangerous. And why do you think that is, that the other side of the refugee story has been kept in the dark? Uh, well, I, camps are unfortunately, and this is my personal opinion, kind of what the international community is used to, and it's what sells, unfortunately. Um, this is what the international community is used to seeing. This is a narrative that they're aware of. It's something maybe they can understand more because it's more compact. It's kind of all in one area, and we can talk about it as a monolith. But for urban refugees spread out, um, not just in Amman, but other places within the country and within Amman itself, that's a little more difficult to talk about. So you would need to kind of, like I said, understand the history and the politics of the city and the country itself. And I don't know if people kind of have the, I don't want to say knowledge, but the awareness of what's going on and the capacity to kind of understand or the time unfortunately to kind of figure out what's going on within an urban setting i'm sure many of us can surmise what the effects of this would be on the urban refugee crisis but since you're there on the ground what are the effects that you're seeing i mean just aid kind of the money that's coming in for urban refugees is very, very small. Like I said, for my organization, we reach out to individual donors and they're great, but it's harder for us to kind of reach out to larger organizations. It's happening slowly, um, but not as quickly as it should be. And then this is affecting the people that we work with. Um, maybe even three years ago when I was teaching the Syrian population, they had some hope, you know, that maybe they could return to their country. This hope has pretty much been lost, unfortunately. Most people are aware that it could take years, even the rest of their lives. Um, they might not ever be able to return. If they return, what are they returning to? Um, so they realize that they need to build another life for themselves. And while they are doing it within the context that they're in, they would rather go somewhere else where they feel it's more sustainable. 
Um, you know, what do they do during the day? Thankfully, where I work, we have a community center. People can go do yoga. They can take English classes. They can take computer classes. Um, the women come and have a workshop and they knit hats, for example. We have an after school club. So we have activities where they can go. But if there is no community center, if there is no place for them to go, they're just sitting at home. Um, and you can imagine how detrimental that can be on the psyche after what they've been through and the trauma that they've been through and what they've seen. So I think this is kind of what we're seeing because of the awareness of the international community or the lack thereof uh, on the urban refugee crisis. To bring more awareness to this issue, the urban refugee crisis versus the refugee crisis that we're seeing plastered all over TV and the news, what type of counter narrative should be initiated to bring awareness of this issue? Well, I think first and foremost, as a, you know, as someone who is on the ground working, you need someone, a large politician, maybe even a celebrity, I don't know, to kind of come into one of these organizations to raise awareness. So people are like, oh, okay. So I was just, honestly, I was like, this needs to be made, you, people need to raise their awareness on this issue. So I wrote an article but I don't know how myself, a programs manager, how many people I'm going to reach. We need someone big to kind of come in and to raise awareness on this issue um, and to make people aware that this is the experience of the majority of refugees. Um, but with regards to that, I feel that the international media, they're focusing on the European crisis and they're not really looking at, okay, why is this a crisis? We were experiencing what Europe has been experiencing in Jordan and the neighboring countries, Lebanon, Turkey, for years. And it was never in the media until it hit Europe, unfortunately. Um, so not only to kind of raise the awareness of urban refugees, but to just raise the awareness of refugees in these countries in general. And to kind of shift the focus on where this problem or this crisis is stemming from. And... With that, as a concluding question, I guess you could say, what does the future hold for these urban refugees in Jordan? I mean, it seems like such a big issue. As you said, it's very easy to see it pessimistically. Um, there's so many people coming in. The numbers are huge for especially a small country. Jordan is not a huge country. So what does the future hold? Um, you You work with these people that are going through help. Excuse my language, but that's the only way you no, can describe it's true. it. <laughs> I mean, it's probably beyond hell. I could not even imagine being in a situation like that. So what do you feel like the future might be for these people? Honestly, most of the people I've talked to don't really think in terms of the future anymore in regards to next year or in the next couple of years. They're just trying to survive day by day even hour by hour sometimes. They might have hopes for resettlement or gaining a job so they can get some kind of income. The hope kind of for going back to their native country has diminished greatly. I mean, the future, that's a, that, that word in itself is so powerful now. What does future mean? When is the future? 
um, that I don't really know if we can talk in terms of that. I mean, I personally hope that, you know, a political solution can be made in these countries and there can be some kind of rebuilding process that's going to take years. Um, you know, just the hope that maybe Europe and the United States especially will kind of change its rhetoric on refugees and begin accepting more refugees after a vetting process or some kind of, um, you know, when the refugees have to go through the security process to gain admittance to these countries. Um, but yeah, the future, that's, that's a great question. And we've asked, I've asked, you know, refugees that I know, friends, you know, these are people who had dreams and still have dreams. But right now, the future for them is tomorrow. And what will tomorrow bring? And really, to conclude, uh, I mean, I, it just came up in my mind right now is what can individuals, so people like myself, listeners, what potentially, if we feel the desire to, can we do to help this situation? Is it possible to do something in our own power, let's say, to help even a small amount of people in this horrible crisis? Right. So I know this sounds maybe terrible or very, you know, rash, but all of these organizations, we need money um, to help these people you know, coming to help, that's great. And if you have a project idea, that's great. But we need to put food on the table for these people. This is our ultimate goal. It's what we need to do right now. Um, so look up organizations that are on the ground. Obviously, I'm going to say that I work for Collateral Repair Project. We do great work, but there are also other organizations doing great work. Um, but like I said earlier, the funds are very small and they're just they're not there if you don't have the money to donate at least read up and try and find different narratives because if everyone's saying the same thing that doesn't necessarily mean that's the only story um dig a little deeper kind of see you know where did this crisis stem from okay who is there what populations where are they living why haven't i heard about this necessarily and then kind of do your own research um find your own narrative and then social media is huge so share what you find send it to your friends send it to your work colleagues send it to your family members um tweet about it facebook post about it do whatever you can um just make sure that these people are not forgotten about because what they're going through, like you said, unfortunately, is hell. And they deserve, you know, to live a life with dignity, just like you or I. Um, you know, these are amazing people. And I can't stress that enough. I have met, you know, doctoral professors who used to teach economics. I met a man who had his own olive soap factory in Aleppo. Who He, he shipped his uh, soap all over the world. I've met doctors who are unable to practice medicine. I've met students. I've met mathematicians, you know, these lawyers, these people had lives just like you and I. They had houses, they had apartments, they had cars, they had neighborhoods, friends, everything that we have. And in the blink of an eye, it was taken away. Um, and I just can't stress enough that these are people. These are amazing individuals, 
and their stories deserve to be told. Very true. And I think that's something that personally I find a little bit appalling in the media is that we're looking at the refugees almost inhumanely, that they're they're a group. They're not individuals, as you just mentioned, with, with lives that have been completely uprooted and turned upside down. Anyways. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> um, and when we talk about, yeah, the refugee crisis, obviously we're talking in terms of big groups of people, but just remember that, yes, these are individuals who, you know, deserve what you and I deserve. Well, Elena, thank you so much for coming on the show and discussing this issue and, and also your personal views since you're there and working with refugees. Um, I really can't stress enough. Thank you for staying up tonight and in Jordan and talking with us. And then for our listeners, we'll definitely post a link to Elena's article so you can read it. And we'll also uh, post a link to the organization that she works with. That way, um, you know, you can potentially find out ways to help or help the organization if you feel so. So, um, you know, there are many options. So thank you so much for coming on, Elena. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been a great time.